You're a Stark of Winterfell. You know our words. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. Winter is coming. And come the winter, you will die. Like flies. Winter is coming. You were born in the long summer. You've never known anything else. But now winter is truly coming. And in the winter, we must protect ourselves. Look after one another. Is all of Game of Thrones really about climate change? Well, I mean, no. I doubt it. But maybe that theory has something to say about the history of fossil fuels. Welcome back to Acclimated. Apologies for the delay on getting this episode out. I was finishing up some work on some other projects, one of which is uh, actually out now. You can check it out if you're interested. I had the opportunity to write and produce an episode of Undark Magazine's podcast series. It's episode 48. It's called Capturing the Songs of a Changing Climate. It looks at a, a field of study that examines climate change through sound. And so I was able to speak to people who are, are doing uh, a bunch of really, really interesting research on habitat loss, extinctions, animal responses to climate change, all that sort of stuff, but they use sound to do it. And so, uh, yeah, if you're interested, you can check it out at undark.org or, you know, whatever podcast platform you prefer to listen to stuff on. Uh, all right, that is enough of that, enough gratuitous self-promotion. Let's turn back to the topic at hand, which is uh, Game of Thrones, apparently. What year is it? So the idea here is that the series speaks to the existential threat of climate change with its very premise uh, reflected in the impending winter, the arrival of the White Walkers. These are cataclysmic threats to the way of life of the characters in the series, perhaps in a parallel to the threat climate change poses to life on this planet. Think about the White Walkers. They're an inhuman destructive force that literally changes the weather during their onslaught. Like climate change, the White Walkers are a threat to the whole human race. Noble houses like the Starks, the Lannisters, the Baratheons, the Martells, and the Boltons are too busy fighting with each other over control of the kingdom to come together over a common threat. Sometimes they even deny that White Walkers are real. Climate change is this massive global threat, but stopping it requires the world's biggest nations like China, India, and the US to sacrifice a little in the short term and put away their political competition with each other. So what does series creator George R.R. R. Martin think of this interpretation? It's kind of ironic because I started uh, writing Game of Thrones all the way back in 1991, long before anybody had, uh, was talking about climate change. So I just want to quickly interrupt to point out that this isn't exactly true. Um, I mean, no disrespect to Mr. Martin here, although I have only read like half of one of his books and I stopped watching his show after the third season. Uh, climate change was definitely on the political and cultural radar at this point. Although it is true that it was uh, not prominent to the same extent that it has been in the past decade or so. 
But that early 90s era is, uh, I think, really important politically, uh, and that's something I hope to discuss in a forthcoming episode. Anyway. But there is, in a very broad sense, there's a certain parallel there. We're, we're fighting our own battles. We're fighting over issues, important issues, mind you, foreign policy, domestic policy, social responsibility, social justice, all of these things are important. But none of them are important if, like, we're dead and our cities are under the ocean. We spend 10 times as much energy and thought and debate in the media discussing whether or not NFL players should stand for the national anthem than this threat that's going to destroy our world. So let's accept maybe a, a softer version of his argument here, which is that climate change wasn't a major part of the discourse when he began writing the series, and now it is. And let's take him at his word that he didn't have global warming in mind when he first sat down to write about Westeros and Winterfell and the Starks and all that. How is it then that this entire series could go from being conceived of in a manner entirely unrelated to climate change and then seem to epitomize it in the minds of some audiences a few decades later? My thoughts on this are pretty convoluted, uh, and we're going to take the long way around to get there. But I think it helps to start by looking at what fossil fuels are and a bit of the history of how they came to be the dominant energy source for the global economy. Renewable energy was, for the vast majority of human history, the standard. Timothy Mitchell's Carbon Democracy opens with a helpful overview of this, so I'm going to sort of try to uh, paraphrase and condense that here. And I'm going to return to the book later to get into the rest of his argument. So renewable energy. In the form of wind and water, it would be used for transportation and to power machinery. In the form of solar energy, it was obtained through uh, crops for food, grass for animals, woodlands for fuel, for heating purposes. All of these things obviously relied on the sun, and they made possible the labor that was demanded of animals and people. And so these forms of energy, however abundant they might be, have particular rhythms that affect their use and how and when they can be refilled. Animals and humans have like metabolic processes that need to be accounted for with rest and food. They have specific lifespans after which they can no longer work. For plant life, there's the rate of photosynthesis. Uh, wind and water don't have those conditions, but their availability is dependent to various degrees on weather and location. But that changed with the shift to a fuel source of a different type, one that is inherited from a much earlier period of this planet's history. To understand what makes this source of energy unique means going back hundreds of millions of years to a time when the planet looked very different than it does today. The continental landmasses were still in the process of separating into the ones that we now know, and the wonders of evolution populated the land with life forms of tremendous size and scale. That's right. That's wrong, actually. Although there is a long-standing cultural association of oil and dead dinosaurs. Technically, it's not true, uh, at least most of the time. Fossil fuels are formed through a process that takes place over millions of years in which living things die, they settle to the ground or the bottom of the ocean, and then over the years they get buried. And a combination of heat, pressure, and time turns them into coal or oil or natural gas. I think coal's origins are mostly in plants from swamps, uh, and oil's formation generally began with microorganisms, just absolutely huge volumes of them. Regardless, that process results in deposits of fossil fuels deep underground that need to be extracted before they can be used. But the way that they have been produced means that their energy potential is significant. Um, and I'll quote Mitchell here. Fossil fuels are forms of energy in which great quantities of space and time have been compressed into a concentrated form. Coal and oil made available stores of energy equivalent 
to decades of organic growth and acres of biomass in compact, transportable solids and liquids. Uh, and Mitchell provides some calculations to try to put this in context. One gallon of oil today required over 200,000 pounds of ancient marine life as precursor material. Now, he uses a liters, so I did some conversion on that. If the math is wrong, it's totally my fault. Sorry about that. I don't know what liters are. I'm from the U.S. But here's another calculation. The amount of fossil fuels burned now in one year required an amount of organic matter equivalent to that of all plant and animal life produced over the entire Earth for 400 years. So there's a really enormous amount of energy that's been built up and is held within these resources. Coal and oil had served a bunch of different functions in societies across the world for many years, thousands of years, really. Um, but with the Industrial Revolution, a fossil fuel became the principal energy source for a society, in this case Britain, uh, which is new. The invention of and later improvements on the steam engine helped to make this possible. And so a fairly typical historical narrative around this is that coal had natural advantages to other forms of energy. Uh, it was more powerful, it was cheaper to use, it was more efficient, more abundant, and that these advantages paired with the steam engine to then spur an extraordinary period of economic development and technological innovation. Here's a recent BBC documentary on the Industrial Revolution featuring historian Jeremy Black that I think is representative of this kind of narrative. If the YouTube comments are to be believed, this gets assigned as homework for high schoolers all the time, so I think uh, it's indicative of it having some re cultural <laughs> relevance, better or worse. Uh, in this clip, he's on the beach and he comes across a piece of coal. Britain's very, very fortunate. Much of it is on top of this stuff, and the seams of it are very close to the surface and easily worked. And thanks to that, coal kick-started a revolution in 18th century Britain. A revolution that transformed not only the country, but the world itself. So we can start to hear the outlines of a familiar linear theory of human progress, in which people in Britain discovered a new way to harness energy in the steam engine. It enabled their society to grow and experiment with new ideas, which then led to further progress, and on and on and on. Perpetual improvement through technology and human ingenuity backed by novel energy sources. In the 18th century, there was a commitment to, an engagement with, the potential of the new. New ideas, new devices, new machines, new processes, which unlocked the resources of society, unlocked the resources of the country, and took Britain into a new world of activity and energy. And finally, there was one important change that's still with us today the conviction that the future will never again be the same as the past. It's no wonder that we call this transformation the Industrial Revolution. It set the world in which we now live. We are in the shadow of the achievements of those people. That may not be a figurative shadow he's talking about there. That might just be actual smog, depending on where they filmed this. Uh, but the script and music presentation, all that sort of stuff, hopefully give a sense of how this kind of triumphalist narrative around coal and steam works. But this is perhaps not representative of a more complicated and difficult history of the rise of fossil fuels as the premier source of energy. Fossil fuels certainly have enormous energy potential within them, but that trait alone can't explain the last two centuries of industrialization. Things had to happen in order to, in effect, shift an entire society over to a new energy source. Physical differences alone aren't a sufficient explanation for fossil fuel use as a political and economic development. Something had to prioritize the unique aspects of fossil fuels and then exploit them to the point of atmospheric catastrophe. 
To get into this, I'm going to be referencing Fossil Capital by Andreas Malm, which looks at the history of the adoption of coal in Britain and sees the foundation for today's global fossil fuel-based economy in Britain in the mid-19th century. He looks most specifically at the manufacturing of cotton, and so he examines cotton mills and then the broader factory system that developed uh, in the industry, which needed an energy source to power its machinery. Malm refers to a lot of primary sources in the book. He's got writings and correspondence from investors and business owners, documentation of court proceedings, uh, minutes from parliament, contemporary economic and political reporting, labor movement literature, all that sort of stuff. I think all that's really valuable, obviously, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to be summarizing pretty broadly here. So Malma argues that despite traits that are now seen as advantages, coal was not indisputably preferable to other energy sources from a business perspective, at least not from the start. Coal was not initially cheaper than alternatives like water power, and it didn't necessarily provide more power or greater efficiency. Malm cites calculations from the period that suggest uh, the opposite was actually true in many places for the first few decades of the 19th century. In some cases, uh, advanced hydropower systems were capable of providing more energy than was needed by local manufacturers. Reserves of unused water power flowed freely through the rivers of Britain every year, even as manufacturers sought to expand production. But the development of steam technology corresponds, not coincidentally, with the expansion of industrial capitalism and the growing influence of Britain's class of industrial capitalists. And Mom argues that water had a number of shortcomings when it came to its usefulness to those seeking the greatest possible profit margins. Water is dynamic, and its potential output can vary across days and seasons and with weather and precipitation patterns. Throughout history, people have engineered all sorts of sophisticated ways of managing this variability, like reservoir systems, aqueducts, whatever. But the sorts of river-based water power systems available in 19th century Britain often required coordination and shared investment among businesses in an area in order to ensure that no one entity used more water at the expense of someone else's productive capacity uh, for maintenance and upkeep of the systems and for, you know, related responsibilities. Some business owners may have been fine with this, given the benefits of the, uh, the energy that was supplied, but others were opposed, believing that these shared obligations came at the expense of their own ability to generate profit. Uh, water power also relied on a proximity to a running water source, like a river, which influenced where owners could place and develop their factories. In some cases, this might require actually like investing financially in a town, building out local infrastructure to support the kind of community needed to supply labor. It might mean spending money to try and attract new laborers to a place with a relatively sparse population, which then increased the potential costs of replacing workers who quit or were fired. So from this perspective, water power might involve a major financial commitment from a factory owner, uh, the kind they didn't really want to make, and it was relatively inflexible geographically. In contrast, according to Malm, Coal had particular spatio-temporal qualities that made it more attractive to some industrial capitalists. Coal deposits, of course, only exist in certain places, but once it's extracted, coal can be transported to wherever it's needed. And coal is unaffected by changes in weather or precipitation. Its energy just sort of sits there, regardless of what's going on around it, until someone uh, uses it up. As a result, coal afforded the ownership class a variety of advantages despite its other limitations including its environmental and health impacts, which communities were very much becoming aware of at the time. With coal, industrialists could relocate their businesses to cities where local infrastructure was already in place, which meant less need for investment in and responsibility toward a community, uh, and labor was more abundant in cities. But concerns around labor were not really related to an actual absolute scarcity of skilled workers, but about costs and the potential for labor exploitation. The larger populations in cities meant that a boss could use the threat of replacing workers as leverage, particularly during periods of economic contraction when finding work was especially difficult. 
This manifested in, among other things, downward pressure on wages, uh, appalling working conditions, and the enforcement of what is sometimes called factory discipline, an approach to labor management that prioritized uniformity of job performance over individual skill sets, that de-skilled workers by breaking up jobs into small tasks, and wherever possible, substituting machines for human labor, and that placed production on cutthroat timelines. And Cole's indifference to precipitation or weather changes, or changes in water levels, anything like that, meant that bosses could drive production for longer periods and at higher outputs so long as they had a sufficient supplies of coal and enough workers to exploit. Now, none of this is to say that mills operating on water power instead were good places to work. They were also nightmarish. It's important to remember that whatever the energy source, a significant amount of the workforce in factories was made up of children who were uncompensated and forced to work shifts that stretched to 12, 14 hours, or even more than that, uh, before the implementation of legal restrictions on the practice uh, later on in the 19th century. So it's, it's, it's not about steam power corrupting uh, you know, a, a better type of labor or anything like that. Mom argues that the crucial difference is really that coal enabled capital to set its own terms more aggressively than the alternatives, without respect to nature and its rhythms, giving owners the ability to set production benchmarks on their own timeline in the locations most convenient to them, and with a workforce they could treat as expendable. Mom claims that, in effect, coal gave capitalists the ability to produce the kind of space and time they desired for profit maximization. It was not simply about the quantity of energy it provided or its costs, but the qualitative differences in production it facilitated. It enabled a higher degree of control and centralization within the hands of capital. Steam won, Mom says, quote, because it augmented the power of some over others. Over a few decades, these standards became more normalized. Profits of coal-powered businesses continued to increase and gradually made water-powered ones less competitive. Economic downturns motivated more relocations to cities. All of this further solidified the switch to coal. And that switch also helps contribute to an emerging conception of the capitalist economy as one with the potential for infinite growth. Capital's ambition on this front couldn't be contained within national borders. With this new form of energy and the control it provided, Industrial capitalists could more easily pursue resources and profits elsewhere. On the basis of an energy source external to local time and space, dug up from the fossilized landscapes of the past, steamboats compressed time and space for the benefit of their masters, free to move with greater speed and freedom, thereby allowing them to appropriate time and space like never before. Appropriate, that is, the labor of people in the peripheries and the land from which all sorts of biophysical resources sprouted. Over the course of the 19th century, this dialectic of externality, compression, and appropriation helped to engender the modern division of labor between an industrially developed core and raw materials supplying on the developed peripheries. During this period, industrial growth in the third world was outright negative. Steam power, I submit, gave a critical contribution to the modern divergence, and it did so above all through the exercise of violence. The human impact of this obviously was staggering. Uh, now, imperialism and colonialism certainly didn't begin with steam power, but its introduction helped Britain, and then later the US and other countries, rapidly expand their reach and ability to plunder. From this perspective, the narrative we heard earlier about Britain innovating itself to a better society through new ideas and new inventions sounds somewhat insufficient. Instead, we can see a process of exploitation, a brutal process, in which colonial regimes achieved their progress always at someone else's expense. And this all laid the foundations for the perpetual growth fossil fuel economy we still live in two centuries later, which continually pushes further 
consumes more resources, produces more pollution, and immiserates more people as it seeks to inflate profits in whatever ways possible. Now, the story of coal and steam is not just a story about capitalism's uncontested advance. It's also the story of workers challenging it, defending themselves against its attacks, organizing and asserting their rights in profound new ways. In Carbon Democracy, Timothy Mitchell argues that this too was made possible in part by the unique characteristics of coal. So with the rise of coal, and particularly with the extended use of coal in the late 19th century, when it started to be used for generating electricity as well as a source of heat or as uh, industrial power. One had societies, particularly in Northern Europe, that were dependent on a single source of energy for vast amounts of their energy needs. It was the first time in history that one had a situation like that because before that the supply of energy was much more dispersed. And that coal, that source of energy, runs along fairly narrow supply routes. It comes from certain places underground, the coal face, and then it's moved by rail and by water to the places where it's used, power stations and uh, sites of industry and large cities. What that meant is not only dependence on a single source of energy, but a source of energy that is vulnerable to disruption because those routes uh, have certain key points where the flow can be interrupted. The result of that was that for the first time in history, it's possible for workers to shut down uh, the energy system of an entire country, something never been possible before when you had those much more distributed sources of energy typically used much more locally. That ability to shut down came to be called the general strike. It was actually all, almost always a key alliance between the coal workers, uh, the dock workers, and, uh, and workers on the railroads who moved, uh, who moved the coal. And simply by coordinating their industrial action, this interruption to the supply of energy, to an economy, to a country could be, uh, could be compromised. Capital responded to strikes and other forms of resistance with violence and had the support of the state in its efforts to protect its investments. Police and military were frequently deployed against striking workers and their supporters. Mom reports that factory workers sometimes destroyed steam engines as part of their work stoppages in a tactic that was frequent and disruptive enough that in Britain, the breaking of steam engines became a felony that could be punishable by death. The same penalty applied for destruction of a coal mine. Mitchell documents the unprecedented victories that workers were able to achieve during this period, despite this opposition. Capital eventually found ways to diversify its approach to expansion and responded by pursuing opportunities in oil, another fossil fuel with unique characteristics, but different from coal. And Mitchell argues that those characteristics helped capital solidify its position in the 20th century. The difference with oil is that first of all it came second. So there was a second major source of energy rather than a single dominant source of energy. And that in itself weakens the ability of those to interrupt energy supply. And the, the second thing about oil is that it was largely produced elsewhere. So it had to travel over much greater distances. But it's also different in its, its physical properties. So whereas to produce coal you need to send a labor force underground and you need then large amount of labor to load it and to move it and to put it to use. Oil comes out of the ground under its own pressure. It's usually a liquid. The labor force stays on, on the surface and uh, is therefore under the supervision of management and of police and other forces uh, 
doesn't have the same independence. And then as a liquid, uh, it can be moved much more easily. It can be moved in pipelines uh, to the terminals at, at the coast, and then it can be moved in tankers. The other thing is that because the oil is largely moved by sea, once it's been loaded onto tankers, it can be routed more flexibly. Uh, coal tended to go on very fixed routes, the fixed routes of rail lines, whereas oil you can think of more like a, a network distribution, where once it's at sea, it can flow to many different directions, different ports, different places of use, so that if a particular site in the distribution of energy is interrupted by strikes, labor actions, democratic claims, the energy can be easily rerouted to another destination or to another port. That flexibility of the network of a, of a seaborne distribution of energy makes it more difficult uh, to interrupt the flow of energy. This isn't to say that resistance was rendered entirely ineffective or that people were unable to organize in opposition to oil extraction and transport. There have been movements against pipeline developments from the beginning through to today, uh, with Standing Rock being just one recent example. But tactics and strategies uh, had to change for everybody, and the methods that labor specifically had previously used might not have been effective in the same way anymore. The owners eventually developed international conglomerates to manage the global scope of these new methods of energy extraction, production, and sale which further solidified their position. All of which is just my uh, very long-winded attempt to say that the history of fossil fuel use is necessarily the history of capitalism, and vice versa. And that means it's the history of class conflict, with people illustrating at every moment that there has always been the possibility of a different world. It's not simply an idealized, frictionless march of technological progress and innovation. Global warming comes from the burning of fossil fuels, certainly but the rate of that burning is an outcome of the economic paradigm that has exploited fossil fuels on its path to domination. Together, they have rapidly transformed this planet's landscapes, waterways, ecosystems, and atmosphere. And the acceleration of that transformation that began with the Industrial Revolution has continued well into the present day. Back in the summer of 1991, George R.R. R. Martin was in between projects as a scriptwriter for TV and film. To fill this gap in his schedule, he began working on a science fiction novel called Avalon, which was the first novel he'd worked on since the mid-80s. While writing that, though, he got an idea for something entirely different. He shelved Avalon and began to focus on his new idea instead. As he worked on the first handful of chapters, the idea expanded laying the foundations for what would eventually become A Song of Ice and Fire. Five years later, in 1996, the first novel in the series, A Game of Thrones, was released. 25 years after that, in 2011, the HBO adaptation premiered. And last May, the series finale aired. During that same period, from Martin getting that first bit of inspiration for a new fantasy world, to HBO subscribers canceling their subscriptions in disappointment, the global economy was in an astounding period of acceleration of greenhouse gas emission production. The production of emissions has accelerated so much in recent decades, in fact, that more than 50% of all of the emissions produced by the burning of fossil fuels since 1750 has been produced since George R.R. R. Martin first began work on A Song of Ice and Fire. A majority of the carbon sitting in the atmosphere from the combustion of fossil fuels has been put there since the early 1990s. This is the legacy of the infinite growth fossil fuel capitalism 
that Britain's industrialists brought to the world stage in the 19th century. In fact, emissions production has continued to accelerate at such a degree that we can shrink this to the time frame of just the HBO adaptation. Around 15% of the industrial emissions produced since the Industrial Revolution were produced in the time between the airing of series premiere Winter is Coming and series finale The Iron Throne. Now, there's nothing particularly unique about the Game of Thrones franchise here, right? We could pick anything that happened 30 years ago and have that be our frame of reference to make the same point about emissions acceleration. The reason I picked Game of Thrones for all of this is, uh, one, it's clickbait, and two, because I think it offers some interesting cultural context. Over the course of the life of this series, the idea of climate change has evolved from being largely irrelevant to Martin at the series' creation to being a lens through which audiences, critics, and Martin himself now understands the political implications of his story. A kind of crude and initially unintended allegory for climate change has aged into itself. It's important to note that the climate change being experienced right now is not necessarily the result of just the emissions from the last 30 years. Uh, this is a complicated process. It can take decades or longer for the effects of global warming to materialize. A number of different greenhouse gases contribute to global warming, and each stays in the atmosphere for different periods of time. Methane, for example, has a much greater warming effect than carbon, but much of it is gone within about 20 years through chemical reactions. Carbon is tougher to calculate. A lot of the carbon that's emitted will be absorbed by the oceans and plant life, which can be a serious problem in and of itself given the rate of emissions production. That carbon will be removed from the atmosphere within 100 years or so. But a significant portion of carbon emissions, maybe as much as 20%, will stay in the atmosphere for a very long time, anywhere from centuries to thousands to tens of thousands of years. So it has the potential to influence our climate for a very long duration. This is why slowing and ultimately stopping the production of these emissions is so important. And it's why it's difficult to state with certainty which emissions from which year led to which impacts from climate change. But this acceleration of emissions production over the last few decades speaks to how rapidly the planet has been transformed by the expanding fossil fuel economy. I think being aware of the speed of that transformation is important because it can help challenge some contemporary ideas around climate change that have become more common. One of those arguments is that climate change is too big and too complex for people to understand. The idea surfaces in a variety of forms, so I'm just going to take one version of it that has gained popularity in the last few years as an example. It's a theory proposed by philosopher Timothy Morton, which claims that climate change is something he calls a hyper-object, a category of things that are too massive in scope for humans to comprehend. Now, admittedly, I am not at all a philosophy expert, uh, so I'm going to attempt to approach this from a different perspective and express my reservations about the political implications of adopting the hyper-object framing with regard to climate change. To help explain what this theory is all about, I'm going to refer to a video on the topic from Hot Mess, which is a show produced by PBS that you can watch on YouTube. Uh, I don't want to be too harsh here as I think this channel does some cool work. And I think this is a good explanation of the concept as well. But I'm just, I'm not fully on board with sharing an uncritical endorsement of this perspective. Climate change is so vast, it and its impacts found in nearly all of the world ecology, that it provides a challenge to human subjectivity. Climate change, despite being definitively caused by humans, is so profoundly non-human, so expansive, that our understanding is continually outpaced by its total seepage into our environment. Hyperobjects, in the simplest sense, are objects which exist across a vast span of time and space. In fact, the spatio-temporal range they occupy is so big, they kind of transcend to a different plane of objecthood. They're not just objects, they're over and above objects. 
thus hyperobjects. This is a good overview of the theory, and maybe it'll be familiar already, either specifically or just in its general sentiment. It's a topic that comes up in uh, like political campaigning or science communication sometimes. Maybe it's something that you felt yourself as you read about global warming over the years. But let's get into some of the details. Any local manifestation of a hyperobject is not directly the hyperobject, Morton writes. And symptoms of its presence shouldn't be confused with their cause. You can't point at something like the rising sea levels and say, that is climate change. Hyperobjects are time-stretched to such a vast extent, Morton writes, that they become almost impossible to hold in the mind. It's true that these things aren't themselves climate change. And maybe in a very literal sense, uh, humans can't conceptualize the entirety of the climate system and the biosphere and all other dynamics all at once. I think that's probably fair. But historically, that hasn't prevented societies from conceiving of and implementing entirely different and more sustainable approaches to things like land management, or agriculture or fire management, all of which, incidentally, are areas in which proven established interventions right now could make serious differences in both long-term warming mitigation and short-term communal and environmental health. If you follow this train of thought too far, you could potentially end up somewhere that says humans can't really conceive of anything beyond themselves in an immediate sense, whether that's the environment or the government or whatever. Now, there's uh, admittedly a temptation to look at the circumstances right now and say, yeah, well, uh, everything's an absolute disaster. Maybe, maybe humans aren't so good at conceptualizing anything at scale. But that's mistaking an extremely specific historical circumstance for the entirety of human experience. There are many examples of societies across the globe who maintained more sustainable relationships with their environments or competently managed self-governance for many generations prior to the onslaught of the fossil fuel economy. Even the notion that humans can only think within certain spans of time, like quarterly or a few years or a lifetime or whatever, it ignores the existence of political, cultural, and environmental practices outside of fossil capitalism that prove otherwise. Are these spans of time we're talking about so great anyway? We've seen significant impacts within a few decades, the most rapid expansion of the fossil economy within the span of one fantasy series. The entire history of the widespread use of fossil fuels for energy needs is exceptionally short. For many, the shift happened in the latter half of the 20th century, or even later. If there are limitations on the ability to think or act beyond the timescale of an earnings report or a pay period, that seems to me to have much more to do with the nature of the world the Industrial Revolution produced, rather than with human nature itself. I'll give just one example of how that has manifested. In Fossil Capital, Mom talks about the fact that factory work was so miserable and so dangerous that, during the first decades of its introduction, some workers just rejected it outright, abandoning their positions or sabotaging their work in hopes of finding opportunities in the agricultural or artisanal labor they and their families had long been accustomed to. This was especially true in the country, where experience with that labor was still recent. But families who moved to cities would, over time, obviously have less and less experience with these more traditional kinds of labor as industrialization proceeded. And industrial capitalists eventually realized this could be to their benefit. The children of these families would have little or no recollection of an alternative to factory work, making them a little less likely to walk off a job, or maybe even a little less likely to challenge these working conditions. Within just a generation or so, industrial capitalists were able to use their economic and political influence and the threat of financial ruin to coerce communities into shifting some of their expectations around what work was and its role in their life. It's not a stretch to think that two centuries later, fossil capitalism's influence on how people perceive the world might be more extensive. 
Morton says that hyperobjects are so massive and so distributed in time and space that they're baffling to think about and can become invisible to human perception because of their sheer magnitude. I think what it comes down to for me is that the concept of climate change as a hyperobject runs the risk of placing climate change outside the realm of responsibility. Rendering climate change as incomprehensible somehow can provoke a kind of stasis. We can't even understand it, so how could we possibly ever hope to address it? This is despite the fact that climate change is entirely human-driven, and driven principally by a select group of humans over a short period of history. And relatedly, but maybe most importantly, I think the hyperobject framing risks depoliticizing this entire discourse. Assertions that human cognition is truly to blame turn the conversation away from climate change's foundations as an explicitly political crisis into something more abstract about the nature of human thought and subjectivity. The focus turns to what people or the public can feel or understand rather than placing attention where it should go, on politics, on the political institutions that are responsible for the creation and perpetuation of this crisis. This approach seems to assume that the broader public shares an equal portion of the blame for the situation being what it is, that the public is somehow in the way of progress because it doesn't care enough or doesn't fully understand, but this isn't really accurate. People have cared about global warming for decades. The issue is one of obstinance and opposition within our political institutions. Climate change is just one of many areas in which there is an excruciating divide between the public's interests and government action. By continually focusing on the human capacity for understanding, the focus goes to the wrong place. It can lead to a sense of defeatism, a belief in a cognitive crisis which can feel insurmountable at the most basic level. I think this is unfortunate. The attention should instead turn toward why political actors across party lines have been so consistently united in opposition to the prevention or even mitigation of global warming, despite having full knowledge of it for at least 40 or 50 years. And I think by digging into the history of the fossil fuel industry and the policies that have shaped energy infrastructure over the past two centuries, and by understanding the relationship of capitalism to fossil fuels as an energy source and as commodities, climate change can become less abstract. It becomes a phenomenon tethered directly to the choices that produced it, located in a specific history, rather than something unfathomable that nature has unleashed. To wrap this up, I'll turn real quick to another author of fantasy and fiction. There's a quote from Ursula Le Guin that makes the rounds online pretty regularly these days, often when some political development has made people feel particularly hopeless. I'm going to use it the exact same way right now. Um, it's from her speech at the 2014 National Book Awards, where she received a Lifetime Achievement Award. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. The reign of the fossil fuel economy has been far, far shorter than even that. Its ecological impacts, however, will last much longer. But how much longer, of course, is still to be determined. That's it for this episode. Thank you again for listening. I'll have references and citations and all that available on Twitter. Uh, if you're interested, you can go check that out. The handle is at acclimatedpod, all one word. I think I'm probably going to try to do something similar to what I did last time around, where I put out uh, a shorter episode to kind of break up the schedule, and then I'll do another longer one after that. At least that'll be the goal. Uh, I'll have updates about how that's going over on Twitter. Otherwise, thanks again. See you next time. <laughs>